Welcome to Close Horse, the podcast that firmly believes Nellie Olson was one of the most misunderstood characters in history. I'm your host, Amanda. Today, we're going to be joined by Jenny, the owner slash designer behind Late to the Party and an all around rad person to talk to about really just about anything. Her brand specializes in turning salvaged fabrics into super cool clothing and masks. So we'll be talking about the wild world of textile waste, thrifting, and fabric recycling. This is part one of two episodes. I mean, primarily because we also talk about a lot of pop culture stuff and, you know, I didn't want to cut it out. If you've ever wondered how Unsolved Mysteries, Delta Burke, and Little House on the Prairie could relate to textiles, well, you're about to find out. First, I wanted to talk a little bit about cotton. You know, the fabric of our lives. Does anybody else remember those commercials from our childhood? Like the soft focus lighting, the song was like the touch, the feel of cotton. Okay, that was kind of like the spoken word version, but you know what I mean. It was later updated by Zoe Deschanel in the late aughts, if I recall correctly. I think we're all looking for a miracle fabric that will allow us to continue to buy and dispose of as much clothes as possible without any repercussions, right? But unfortunately, as I've said before, that fabric does not exist. I mean, at the end of the day, we have to change our ways. I know, I know, change is hard. But soon it begins to feel natural, and later it feels like, wow, I'm so glad I made that change because my life is better. So we're going to do this together. It's great for us to avoid synthetics as much as possible, especially when we're talking about buying brand new clothing. Cotton is great because it's breathable. It doesn't shed microplastics everywhere you go. It's easily cleaned and cared for. But cotton isn't perfect. I can't say that enough. And while cotton is often treated with not-so-great chemicals and dyes, its cultivation, harvesting, and processing is super extra problematic. First, some background. Cotton is the most widespread, profitable non-food crop in the world. Its production provides income for more than 250 million people worldwide. That's not quite the population of the United States, but getting pretty close. And it employs almost 7% of all labor in developing countries. Cotton is brutal. It severely degrades soil. I mean, just exhausts it. It's grown over a huge portion of the Earth's agricultural land. So this kind of soil depletion is highly problematic. Like, once you stop growing cotton there, you can't grow anything else. When a parcel of land is depleted to the point where it can no longer support cotton, new areas are cleared to create new fields, which destroys habitats that belong to other plants and animals. And this happens constantly because so much cotton is being grown to meet our increasing demand for ridiculous amounts of new clothing and home textiles. Like, don't even get me started on what I call the home decor industrial complex. It's a ridiculous level of home goods consumption that's perpetuated by Marie Kondo, influencers, and a plethora of retailers. And it encourages us to redecorate our places every year with a steady rotation of new bath mats and shower curtains, bedding, throw pillows, like so many throw pillows. Don't forget the placemats too. By the way, if you do work in the home goods industry, I would love to interview you for this show. I'm fascinated by it. Okay, but back to cotton. 
As I mentioned in the previous episode with Janelle, cotton is considered the world's dirtiest crop because it uses so much pesticides. And pesticides threaten the quality of soil and water, as well as the health of biodiversity in and downstream from the fields. Excessive use can affect the health of all people living and working near the crops, and the runoff can destroy entire water ecosystems and leach into drinking water. Speaking of water, cotton is thirsty. It requires a crazy amount of water for both cultivation and processing. Agricultural experts agree that cotton uses more water than just about any other crop. In fact, are you ready for this? It takes 710 gallons of water to make just one t-shirt. That's how much a person drinks in three years. Although I would argue I drink a little bit more than that because I have like five beverages on my desk right now. But remember, when we talked about sustainability, ecological impact is only half of the equation. The other half is the welfare of humans, right? Well... It's no secret that cotton cultivation has long involved oppression and exploitation of human beings. For example, lest you somehow forgot this, the enslavement of black people in the United States, where among other things, they were forced to work in the fields, tending and picking cotton. You might think that slavery is a thing of the past, but you would be very, very wrong. First, they are the Uyghur Muslims who have been imprisoned in concentration camps and used for forced labor, aka slavery, In China, about one in five cotton garments sold globally contains cotton or yarn from the Xinjiang region in northwestern China. This is where about one million Uyghurs are being imprisoned. When you realize that one in five, that's 20% of cotton garments in the world are being made in this area, then you know that tons of retailers and brands are either knowingly or accidentally participating in these human rights abuses. This includes supply chains of many huge retailers, including Adidas, Lacoste, H&M, Abercrombie & Fitch, Ralph Lauren, Tommy Hilfiger, and Calvin Klein. And once again, I cannot emphasize this enough. This is happening right now. Right now while I'm recording this podcast and right now while you're listening to it. In India, a steady stream of poor young women from rural towns are being lured into thousands of cotton mills with the promise of a marriage scheme. Basically, they're offered lump sum payments at the end of working a three-year period, which they will be able to use toward a dowry. This can sound sort of confusing. No, not the dowry part. When I say they're getting a lump sum payment, I mean, they're not getting paid at all for three years, but then they're getting paid at the end. Does that make sense? In reality, I mean, you already thought this sounded sketchy, right? Well, it's actually a form of modern slavery called bonded labor. They can't change their employer, they're not allowed to leave the factory hostel, and they are forced to work extreme amounts of overtime. Yep, sounds like slavery to me. Verbal, sexual, and physical abuse is very common, and it's estimated that this involves about 100,000 women per year. Textiles and clothing are a huge part of the economy in India. It's the second largest employer after agriculture, providing about 45 million jobs. And it's 4% of the country's GDP, which, if you're not down with economics in the way I am, that's a lot. But it's a competitive market with retailers and brands demanding lower and lower costs. We talk about that all the time. 
There are many reasons why this demand for lower and lower costs is problematic. And one of them is that more and more of the industry is turning to this bonded labor. How does it work? Well, happily married women, it's definitely supposed to be a little sarcastic. These happily married women are paid about $30 to scout what are likely poor, probably illiterate young women in rural areas. And they offer the girls 30,000 to 60,000 rupees for three years of work. What does that mean in US dollars? Are you ready? $470 on the low end to $940 on the high end for three years of work, like in total. But even farmers are struggling to meet the world's demand for cheap cotton clothing. Since the 1990s, more than 300,000 farmers in India's cotton belt have committed suicide. Basically, the farmers rack up debt that they can't afford to pay back. And that's because the cost of cotton is so volatile and it's so dependent on customer demand. So If polyester and other synthetics are trending, then cotton gets cheaper, right? Because it's less desirable. So you got to mark it down, if you will. If China uses slavery to produce cotton, which we know they are, then they can drop prices super low. So Indian farmers must drop their prices to an unsustainably low level to keep up. If billions of dollars of orders are canceled due to COVID, hashtag ripped from the headlines, Cotton prices go even lower because there's an excess of cotton on the market. Once again, it's sort of like the markdowns that these other brands have had to take when they have too much inventory. And then there's the ever-accelerating climate breakdown, creating weather patterns that make it almost impossible to grow a steady, predictable, successful crop. You know what the saddest part of the whole thing is? Often these debts that drive the farmers to suicide are only a few thousand dollars, maybe like $3,000. But wait, there's more. Cotton is a huge business in Uzbekistan. One-fifth, that's 20% for you percentage maniacs, one-fifth of the adult population picks cotton. In the past, children have been part of this workforce, but global outrage put a stop to that. So yay for everyone who helped stop that. But 170,000 people are forced by the government forced meaning enslaved, to pick cotton in Uzbekistan each year. And this cotton ends up being used, perhaps unknowingly, it's hard to say, by many major brands and retailers. The World Bank has stepped in and it's been working with them to diversify the country's agricultural sector, kind of in hopes of decreasing its reliance on cotton. Because once again, cotton is so devastating in so many ways. So even if they started paying everyone to pick the cotton, there's still all the environmental impacts that could be very bad for the future of the country, their ability to produce food, their ability to create an economy out of other crops. So it's good to make that transition now. Are you depressed yet? Well, don't be, because we can work together in a lot of ways to make this better. One, I know I already said this, you know what I'm going to say, we need to buy less clothing period, whether it's cotton or any other fabric. Two, we need, no, we must pressure retailers and brands to audit their supply chains, like fully and transparently. That includes subcontractors, which as we've discussed before, is where things often really fall apart. 
And thirdly, when we do buy new clothes, we need to buy them from brands that are really doing their due diligence about where their cotton is coming from and the conditions under which it's grown and produced. It's probably best to opt for organic cotton, but keep in mind that it uses even more water. So once again, it's not a magic bullet that allows you to buy tons of clothes and barely wear them because we're not doing that anymore, remember? The WWF, the World Wildlife Fund, not the wrestling group, has created the Better Cotton Initiative. Basically, it's a series of policies that rein in the water used to grow cotton, reduce the use of pesticides, and improve the conditions of the workers and farmers involved in its production. And you know what? It's working. Better Cotton Initiative helped farmers reduce pesticides by 47% and chemical fertilizer by 39% across over 300,000 hectares in 2012. And they're continuing this hard work. It's getting better and better. Even more importantly for the farmers, yields are just as good. And a yield is the amount of cotton they end up with at the end of the season. And there's an average 11% increase in income compared to farmers who are still using conventional practices because they can charge a little bit more. It's a little bit more of a premium product. You can find out more about the project and the brands and retailers that are part of it at bettercotton.org. And don't worry, I'll share it in the show notes. Well, now that I've ruined cotton for you, I guess it's time to get into the conversation with Jenny. So let's do it. Today we're joined by Jenny. And I have to say that I've been internet friends with Jenny for years now. It's the first time I met someone like, you know, via audio means and was like, yeah, their voice (laughs) is exactly how I thought it would sound. (laughs) I guess I thought you're, I guess you sound kind of this is how I thought you would too. Amazing. I don't know what that means, but. <laughs> <laughs> so Jenny, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes. My background is mostly in textiles in some form or fashion. Um, I sort of started out my career in interior design. So I sort of did, I did sort of the back end of interiors, um, you know, designing uh, showrooms for uh just like home design showrooms and things like that. Got more into the textile side. And then I worked for an interior designer for years. And I really was always, the thing I always loved about it really was the fabrics and doing all the fabric schemings for rooms and things like that. And then I kind of worked my way, did a lot of textile design uh, after that for a lot of variety of companies. And then ended up working for a small textile company in Greenpoint called Alfie, which was awesome. It was really small company, really cool, just like women owned small. We did a lot of like really interesting, cool wear design stuff, which was really Mm -hmm. creative for me. And I got to see a lot of the aspects of designing work and then doing social media and just kind of like all the things about it. And then I branched off on my own and started a small kind of like boutique style online e-commerce company that basically uh, we take vintage and salvage textiles and remake them into like new sort of modern garments. So yeah, that's kind of like a general overview of sort of where I'm coming from. So one thing that you and I have bonded over is our love of thrifting. Like this for me, thrifting is like what my family does on the weekends for fun. That's our idea of an ideal day. And when quarantine began and we could not thrift, there was so much sadness expressed every day (laughs) by every member of my household. 
<laughs> same yeah it was a little bit like it was the first time in my life too that i had not been able to go out to like a sale or go to a thrift or anything for like months which was very strange for me too and you i mean you and i talked a lot about how thrifting was so important to us even growing up i think like you had sort of a unique experience with thrifting I did. Yeah. So my mom, I grew up in Southern Connecticut. My parents, you know, worked really hard for what they got, but there was a lot of, I was around a lot of like money, you know, being in in a a sort of very affluent uh, area of Connecticut. And so, and at that time, you know, it was not cool to thrift at all. So, but my mom was somebody who's always loved, you know, like, home goods and things. And so she was a collectibles dealer. You know, she had a small little collectible shop. So she was like really into finding, you know, McCoy ceramic and just a variety of like, that was her thing. Uh, So we would go to Salvo's and Salvation Army. Sorry, I abbreviate Salvo. Like everyone knows that. Um, (laughs) That's how you know you're a pro though. (laughs) Salvo GW is most goodwill because we never really like said the real name too because it was all code. So we would go in the summer while people were like playing tennis. I mean, I did that stuff too, but we would go and sit at the goodwills and stuff and wait for them to like bring out new, you know, new stuff. Um, And it was like really kind of exciting and totally weird. And unlike other friends of mine, which were not doing that with their mom, but you know, and they weren't always in the best neighborhood either. So we would just kind of like sit there, wait for them to bring stuff out. And I just would like, you know, start looking through the racks of clothes while, you know, waiting for my mom and just like find really cool like prints and like weird things. And as a kid, I mean, you know, it was probably like middle school-ish when I started you know, you would just sort of like make up stories and be like, "Ooh, what is this weird gown? Like, I wonder who wore that. And my imagination sort of started going. And that's really what started like me, the love of, of kind of like thrifting and finding treasure. It was really that whole idea of like finding the treasure and like the hunt, you know, that's what really drives me with that. Unlike just like going to like mm-hmm. a store and buying a thing that anyone can get in any size, you know, it's just like finding this like special thing and like knowing what, where it came from. So that was always like, the fun part for me. And so, yeah, so that's kind of like how I started with thrifting with my mom and uh, going to estate sales. And, you know, and then we talked about a little bit how things have changed since then. I mean, it definitely has changed. When I think about the thrifting of like my teen years, this is something that my friends who are the same age as me, you and I have talked about this, like it like pains me Mm -hmm. because I'm like, I have this feeling of loss. I went to college with probably the best clothes of anyone at NYU because I had been thrifting for like five years and just had everything was from the 70s maybe the early 80s maybe the 60s just incredible like leisure suits and like cool t-shirts and I had all kinds of crazy like late 70s early 80s adidas stuff like I just think about all the incredible things I used to be able to find Mm. all the time like I'd put things back because there was more than I could ever use and somewhere along the line it really changed I was curious about that because I, you know, when we we were like sort of talking about thrifting and and I remember, you know, just like you said, things just being in abundance and especially like 70s, 60s stuff, things I weren't weren't even into, like 50s, like things. And then I was like, okay, so when did eBay start? And that was, so eBay launched Mm -hmm. in 95 and it took like a second for it to catch on, but I think it was pretty quick because it went public in 98. So that was, I think, when things really took a turn before when, you know, you would sort of like, if you were in the know, if you were, I mean, as my, again, back to my mom, it's like, she was a collector, right? So she collected like mostly ceramics and stuff like that. I mean, that was in glassware and like depression glass and, you know, milk glass and things like that. But there was people 
that she knew that were niche dealers, right? So those are the only people who really knew whether it was clothing, furniture, like mid-century stuff. Those people had had books and like researched like, you know, what things were worth and time periods. And you kind of had to be somebody who was a nerd about it to know. And then eBay comes along and you just you just look it up, you know? Oh, I found this weird lamp. It's got this mark on it. Okay, let me look it up. Boom. Mm-hmm. And then 10 people that are in the know will say, hey, this is worth, you know, 250 bucks. And you're like, oh, okay. You know, so I think that was what really changed some of that. It, it lost that, like, you have to be sort of in the know to understand what you're looking at sort of thing, you know? Absolutely. I definitely, I think you're right there. Like that late 90s was really the turning point. Like I remember a time when I would say, and my friends and I would discuss this, like, it's way too expensive to buy vintage clothes on eBay. That's crazy. Those people are committing highway robbery. That's for people who are too lazy to go thrifting. So there was this like buffer time in there where you could still go thrifting and get good stuff. But then sometime in the early aughts, it was like, wait, yeah, actually I can't anymore. Like now I'm going to buy vintage clothes on eBay because it's cheaper than going to a vintage store. It's almost like thrifting. And then eBay got turned into like, I don't know. eBay is so crazy now. It's very weird. My... (laughs) It's very weird. My husband still shops pretty regularly from eBay and we chastise him constantly about driving while eBaying. Like, so <laughs> he's still in in eBay and I use it every once in a while, but the good stuff isn't there anymore. Right. I think it's good for like, if you're looking for something really specific, like if yeah, you know, yeah. like I was trying to hunt this thing down, it's like, okay, so if, you, if you're looking for something specific, you can go and like find something. I bought like a vintage sewing machine and it didn't have the, like the manual with it. So I found it online. It was such a it's such a niche business that this guy is doing, but he basically collects old like machine, you know, machinery manuals and things and sells them. And so I spent like 25 bucks on this, which seems like crazy. And it kind of is, but I, I found this really cool vintage sewing machine and I'm like, I really need the manual. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, no, something like do. that. It's perfect. You know, I do love that eBay has enabled people for years now. I mean, for like more than 20 years now to build a business when they would have never had yeah. that uh, capability in the past because having a business used to be so expensive. I mean, it's, it can be now, but like you could right. literally be this guy who makes a living off of selling old manuals for sewing machines. That's incredible. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I also think that thrifting changed because clothes got cheaper and people were just like bombarding yes. – the thrift store with like terrible clothes. I mean, you and I have talked about this. Like I get so bummed when I'm, I'm like, Oh, this is, what is this? This is so cool. And I pull it out and it's old Navy. Like, yeah. It's like H yeah. and M. Like, oh. Cause they have gotten good at making some like vintage prints and things where you're like almost tricks me. And then I'm like, damn, I got, I got schooled by H and M. They like tricked me. <laughs> so it was like the eBay factor. And then the fact that like, you're right. Like there's like the old, the big box, the old Navy, the H and M, the Zara, all that stuff started coming in. That was like kind of around the same time where that really became a thing, like late nineties, like into the early 2000s. And I think that the quality changes, which is like kind of what we're talking about today. She was just like textile quality and clothing, you know, construction quality. So you're like getting a lot of like ratty t-shirts and stuff. And now it's like most of the time when I go I almost don't go to Goodwills mm-hmm. anymore because they've just changed so much. And there a lot of times it's just like Target has a surplus of like weird notebooks or, you know, and they just dump all that stuff there. It's not really like the <sighs> same, but I think that, you know, I mean, that's part of it. Those clothing is not made like it was the things that are getting recycled and brought to secondhand stores and things are just not there. It's not what it what used to be. So both of those aspects have really like changed things a lot. For sure. For sure. I rarely find clothes thrifting anymore. And usually it's more about home 
goods. That's what I tend to find. Right. Or I'll find like functional things. Like I actually need a black skirt. I'm like, okay, I'll find that. You know, something like that. Like it's more like functional real life stuff, I would call it versus like sexy, magical pieces that you're like, oh my God, this crazy gown or, you know, things Mm -hmm. like that you don't find. Yeah. Yeah. Totally agree. It's it's definitely my approach to thrifting has changed so much, or at least like my expectations you know, my daughter still finds tons of stuff every time we go thrifting, but she also looks at things that you and I would cast aside because it's like late 90s, early aughts. Like we're just not right. into that. And for her, it's less about like this magical 60s, 70s unicorn and more about this is what the style is right now. Like this right. is what I want. This is like the aesthetic I'm shopping for. And so it's it is a lot more sort of a useful i guess right like we're talking about so how did your love of thrifting lead you to starting a business for a long time since i was somebody who i mean i did a lot of thrifting but i do a ton of estate sales now and that's really kind of like my bread and butter and for a long time as you know i've been working in textiles and i was like i do want to start something on my own i've always had this like entrepreneurial spirit but i didn't want to sell vintage clothing that didn't seem exciting to me and also it's really hard i mean it's a real grind Mm -hmm. you'd have to like constantly be finding things and that people would actually want to wear in the right sizes and, and and also like Mm-hmm. I'm dealing with that now as part of what I want to do as my business is that I really want to make sure people of all sizes can like enjoy and fit into the clothes that mm-hmm. I'm making. I don't want to ever make anything that feels like really size specific, like only one kind of body type will fit it. And that's something that you find with vintage a lot is that you'll find a killer dress or at least really cool textile or print, but I mean, it's for a size zero and God bless those women that can fit yeah. into that size zero. But a lot of us are not like that. I always felt that was frustrating too. I didn't want to like have a vintage store with like a bunch of size zero dresses because it doesn't feel very much mm-hmm. like my, me, you know. As I kind of explored more and thought about it, I, I was always really drawn to the textiles, the prints, the patterns, you know, the like cool, just like just tactile textiles that I would find. And mm-hmm. so I basically started being like, you know what, what if I took these materials and made them into like a modern, like easy to wear silhouette that people would like feel really good in. So that's kind of how it started. So I, I'm basically currently have a couple silhouettes, a little like quilted bolero jacket and like more of a lounger jacket. And then a couple other things I'm going to be launching soon, sort of like easy to wear things that actually like are flattering on people, like different body types mm-hmm. look good in it. I've had friends who are really small and larger and they try them on and they're like oh this feels nice and it like flatters them so that was kind of a major thing for me is just like taking these beautiful textiles that I fell in love with and like giving them a new life really and making like almost like an heirloom piece that you're going to want to keep for a long time and wear a lot Mm -hmm. so that was kind of like the basis of starting my business and also I'm such a nerd about textiles and and feeling like certain materials are just so different now like I'm kind of like a terry cloth freak and I collect a lot of like uh, 70s towel like my husband's always like oh my god what is your obsession with these towels <laughs> no they're awesome I, mean, I was- have piles of these towels now because I have a business I that like <laughs> you know uses them I could be like babe it's for the business like stop harassing me before when I wasn't making things and selling things it's a little bit more like well I'll just use them when we you know when we buy a lake house he's like okay that's not happening <laughs> but I, I really am into the way that certain textiles feel from the mm-hmm. past too like 70s terry cloth is awesome in a lot of ways and like you know, now if you see a, t- if like, a lot, I mean, not all of them, but a lot of the towels and things that are made now are kind of cheap, mm-hmm. feeling, which is kind of a bummer. So there's just like certain materials that just 
were just made so much better back then too. So I love that idea of too, of like taking some of that stuff and, and just making something new that feels like great out of these old materials. I use a lot of denim. I, I use a lot of like non-stretch denim um, to like mix and match with a lot of the old patterns. And I'll find a lot of, you know, styles of jeans that are like, the, the denim's nice. It's non-stretch. It'll hold up. It's like a good wash, but it's kind of like an, a weird size or ill-fitting style you know like things like that where I'm like oh great no one's gonna wear this because it's got like weird pleats in the front Uh, or something so I'll take those and you know and cut them up and use that for part of patchworking and things like that or old dresses that like maybe have a huge rip in it or a huge stain in the armpit and like no one's gonna wear that but the pattern's killer so I'll like, you know, get it cheap. I'm mm-hmm. like, oh, it's an as is thing. It's, you know, it's not that expensive and I can, it's enough material that I can actually use to repurpose. Yeah, no, your stuff is incredible. I urge everybody who's listening to check it out because you have such an eye for the kinds of prints that like you want to hold on to forever. <laughs> That's nice to hear. Yeah, I do feel like they sort of like come to me and, and if I were to sit down and I mean, some of them are, I can explain, I love a 70s floral, you know, obviously. I mean, who doesn't? Um, But like, there's some other ones that I'm kind of like, I don't know why, but this one is just, they sort of like speak to me when I see Mm -hmm. them. I'm like, yes, I just know that I like, I have to have that naked into something. So yeah, I I really try to be drawn towards like prints that are unusual and like, you know, I mean, I hate the whole sparks joy thing i'm like not into that whole <laughs> that whole like genre of like living but um but i do feel like 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 you're like like simplify your life i was like no i have like buckets of fabric and like oh, you know, yeah i'm definitely like no. a hoarder artist but oh yeah we live in a crazy person house too it's fine like, <laughs> yeah. it's but fine. i do think that feeling of like something that just speaks to you you know that just makes you feel like oh my god that's so cool like those those colors are mm-hmm. so weird together like who thought of that you know things like that is usually what I'm drawn to and pull out and and use I think that's so cool I do think there's something like when you were talking about first off the 70s were the golden era for bath towels I just have to say that yes sometimes I just yes. look at photos of them online to like soothe myself another fabric that I always think of that used to be so much better and just got ruined by this world is velvet like Think about how nice velvet used to be. Yes. Like when you find a dress from the 60s or the 70s that's velvet or even velvet upholstery. My, my grandma had an amazing velvet couch. And now velvet mm-hmm. is like mm-hmm. legging mm-hmm. fabric or something. Yeah, it's so terrible. Garbage. Yeah, it's like stretchy. It's very stretchy. Well, it's funny because when I worked in interiors, I worked at a very like high-end interior design firm in Manhattan that was just so over the top and like, you know, kind of comical in that in that sense, where it was almost like <clears throat> I was working for like this character that I was like in a in a book of like what who you'd think was like a a French gay <laughs> older interior designer, you know. But I did learn a lot about fabrics because all our clients were super wealthy and had crazy budgets, which was great as somebody who's like a creative person to be able to pull materials and like not worry about like, you know, cost Mm -hmm. per minute. I mean, not sustainable for me to work there long-term, but it was an amazing experience. And the velvets and stuff, I learned the difference between like a silk velvet, a cotton velvet, you know, and, and feeling that. And like, when you start seeing what those really feel like, it's like, oh, okay. You know, silk velvets are obviously like the top of the top and they have such a buttery feel to them. It's just like unbelievable. And then cotton, like a nice hundred percent cotton velvet is even still really nice. Cause you don't even see that as much anymore. You know, it's all like polyester and yeah, melty. whatnot. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. They're stretchy and 
Uh, it's very different. And, and actually, it's very hard to find velvets online. I did want to do like a couple of velvet jackets. And I have found as is dresses that are like very weird design, like no one's going to wear, but the material is actually really nice. I have a couple of those, but I was looking for velvet upholstery fabric online for a while. I was doing like a lot of searching and it's really hard to find. And it's really expensive because people realize that mm. now, you know, it's like a silk or a cotton, an actual cotton velvet that's like, you know, nice. They don't make them as much anymore. So they're like coveted. My parents had a velvet couch in our basement and I still like get sad when I think about like it probably went to Goodwill or something. Mm -hmm, it was mm -hmm. my dad's like bachelor couch and it was like super 70s. It wasn't even like a floral. It was almost like a like a mossy kind of look thing where there was like a weird abstractness to it, but it kind of had a floral vibe and it had those chrome legs and arms and stuff. Oh yeah. That is such a bachelor couch. Totally. It was all brown, like shades <laughs> of brown, you know? I was like, yeah, Damn, I wish my dad had held on to that. <laughs> We do have a velvet couch at our house. We're really nice. lucky. My grandma found it thrifting for us last year, and it's floral from the 70s uh, velvet. But I also have a dream of having one of those, like, velvet fainting couches someday. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, we're going to need a like bigger place. a tufted place. one. Yeah. Doesn't that sound luxurious? <laughs> totally. I could I could faint many times during the day. I could work that out. <laughs> I just don't have a good place to faint right now. <laughs> I mean, you know, this year, I think we could all use that probably. I know. <laughs> I'm like five seconds from fainting at any given moment now. So <laughs> yeah, exactly. Nice. They're coming nice. back in fashion. <laughs> totally. <laughs> The 2020 fainting couch. Oh, God. <laughs> let's let's make that trend now. <laughs> yeah, we'll totally trend that. <laughs> so today, Jenny and I are going to talk about fabric waste. And we're going to talk a little bit about how we as consumers waste fabric. But we're really going to talk about how the industry wastes fabric. It's like the amount of fabric that is wasted is pretty crazy. In fact, one study estimated that 15% of fabric used in garment manufacturing is wasted. Other studies found that the, it's about 10% when you're making pants and jeans and a little bit less than 10% for blouses, jackets, underwear. And some estimates even place textile waste during garment manufacturing at 25 to 30%. And it, I mean, it makes sense, right? Like, I mean, you know, Jenny, like when you're cutting out a garment, right. there's all these rando pieces. Totally. And like, what do you do with it? Like, and the smaller the thing is, the more you can get out of the fabric. It makes sense. And in my experience as a buyer and working on product development, factories do work pretty hard to get as much out of a roll of fabric as possible because, you know, it's all about the bottom line for them. Right. So there's software you can use that sort of places the pattern for you and tells you exactly where to cut it. But still, a lot of fabric is getting thrown away and 15% or even 30% might not sound like that much. But then when you think about how many clothes are being made, Yep. so gross. Uh, this percentage is like impacted by a ton of variables. Like, like I said, from the type of garment to the fabric width to the design on the fabric, you know, if it's like a placed print, which, you know, you want to like line up the print on all the seams and stuff. I mean, we've talked before about how you can tell something is really cheap when someone turns to the side and like the side seam, the print doesn't meet up, but probably a lot less fabric was wasted there. So there's just fabric waste everywhere. This level of waste, it has been tolerated for decades. Like this isn't a new thing because there's been no drive or pressure to reduce it. But when you think about how many clothes we're making now, this 
is so much waste. And that's just the waste before we buy our clothes. Studies indicate that the average American throws out about 82 pounds of clothing and textiles, so like also bedding, home goods, accessories, every year. And of that 82 pounds, 15%, which is about 12 pounds per person, is recycled by being donated and then recycled or repurposed. 70 pounds go to the landfill, even though it could be recycled. And all of those synthetic clothes, which is about half of them, will take hundreds of years to decompose. So up to 95% of the textiles that are landfilled each year could be recycled. And the amount of textile waste thrown out by Americans each year has doubled since 1999. Kind of going back to what Jenny and I were talking about, like all of a sudden there were just so many clothes and they didn't hold up, like they didn't stand the test of time. So it makes sense, you know, when we think of the rise of fast fashion that suddenly we're throwing even more garbage clothes out into the landfill. So... How does this waste happen on the industrial side? Because we know how it happens on our side. Well, one is that brands make more fabric in a printer color than they actually plan on using. When you want to do your custom print, which most brands want to do, right? You don't want to just buy what's out there because someone else might have it. There are MOQs, which is minimum order quantity on custom prints and colors. And so that's going to be at least one full roll of fabric. I mean, like a truck-sized roll of fabric. Like you need a truck to deliver it. And that can make thousands of garments. And I've worked places where we wanted to do our custom own custom prints. We did. We bought a huge roll of fabric. So like enough to make thousands of garments. And you know what? We bought 300 units. So where did the rest of it go? Have you, have you had any experience with that? Jenny working for like smaller brands? Um, not as much. I mean, that's a problem that I've run into working with smaller brands where it's harder for us to meet those minimums, you know, so you end up working with smaller companies that do print work or, you know, things like that, where they will do smaller runs of things. I haven't had that experience, but I, I've, I've, I've heard about people talking about it. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. And it's been primarily when I've worked for smaller companies, but not necessarily because I've also worked for larger places where we could afford to buy a thousand units, but we were concerned about making the commitment to a thousand units. So we might say, let's just make 300 anyway, because we want to see if people like this. So that fabric just hangs out. It might be burned. It might be sold off. It could go to the landfill. People talk about dead stock and a lot about what that is and if that's like a more eco-friendly mm. way to like make clothing from dead stock. But I think dead stock is really linked into what you're talking about, where it's companies making an like a surplus of this material because either minimums or for whatever reason, it's cheaper. And then so that surplus is what goes into dead stock, basically. Dead stock is basically just the fabric that can't be sold, you know, or is not selling. It's just been sitting there for a while. So it's not necessarily more like eco-friendly because it's, you know, it's part of this like weird cycle of the fashion industry and like ordering more than you need and all that stuff. So yes, it is getting used by someone who can say, okay, I'll buy that. But it's not really um, helping this problem, I think. No, definitely not. I think there's this misconception that dead stock fabric is vintage. It's like salvaged from the days of yore. And I think there might have been a time when a big chunk of that fabric would have been these high quality unused vintage fabrics, but that time is long gone. And I even think, you know, I I think of Reformation as a place that made ostensibly a whole business out of using dead stock fabric. They don't as much anymore, but in their early days they did. And I remember buying this dress. It was like sort of iconic of that time. It was like, it laced up the front 
and it was black mm-hmm. and I got it and it was made of piquet, like golf shirt mm. fabric. <laughs> so, yeah, so disgusting. And I, in my mind, I, th- I think I thought I was going to get some sort of like really nice vintage fabric. But once again, that's not what dead stock means. It, it did right. at a certain point. It doesn't now. Yeah, it could it could be. I mean, you know, there is places that have or when you talk about like with vintage clothing, it's sort of like, you know, that's different. Right. Where it's like, oh, it's this dead stock, you know, people find, oh, this guy who he had a shoe store. Do you remember that shoe store in Philly? Speaking of total tangent, but that shoe store in Philly that was like a time capsule for years in South Philly. It was right by yeah. remember that place? I mean, I think it's yeah, gone now, yeah, yeah. but it was basically like an old shoe store. That was just, it looked like someone just literally just walked out the door and never came back one day. And it was from like the 60s (laughs) or something. And it was just all kids' shoes, I think it was kids' shoes. And they're all like pink and blue. And I remember like looking in the window and being like, wow, it was such a magical time capsule. Um, So that would be like an example of like dead stock that's like vintage dead, you know, shoes that were never touched or something like that. Right, right. Yeah. And I think that is a good distinction. Somehow there's still dead stock stuff from that era lurking in the world. excite me when I hear about it. But (laughs) in the fabric world, it's a lot different. I feel that we're going to see a huge uptick in this like dead stock fabric because brands and retailers have canceled so many orders this year Mm. and often after the fabric has already been made and purchased, which means that fabric has got to find a home. And we're talking like millions of yards of fabric like yeah like maybe some of this will be used in future orders maybe it won't be because there's a certain seasonality and trendiness when we talk about prints you know like right the, what's in right now i'm not even sure what's in right now it's just like what <laughs> everyone like, what is in yeah, right now <laughs> yeah yeah I, I i don't know i don't even see enough people in real life to know what's in right now <laughs> but you know I have to say I've never been somebody I mean I think you're sort of like this too where it's just sort of like we like what we like and I know that there's like some mainstream trends that come in and out that of course I, I'm aware of and I follow some of that myself just because I happen to like those things but I feel like some of that stuff is kind of silly it's like people should like wear what they like and what feels good on them no 100% my love of like getting dressed and clothes has always been about how it makes me feel and like how I get to express myself creatively or like work through whatever's going in my mind that late week, like what movies or books or old magazines or whatever, like was I digesting that week that is giving me this feeling, you know? And like who you want to be that day. Sometimes I just want to be like a totally like lazy, like beach bum and wear like whatever. And then some days I'm like, I am a put together woman. (laughs) I'm a business woman. I am creative. I wear weird stuff. You know, it's like, uh, yeah, it changes daily. I think sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's how I feel too. And so I I get sad when everybody's like, well, we all got to wear off the shoulder tops right now. You know, (laughs) like like, I do not. (laughs) No, I need to use my arms for one. I use my arms kind of all day, every day. <laughs> right because <laughs> you're a human in the world using yeah. your arms yeah exactly exactly so I do I do like the way that fast fashion I'm also just going to say this as someone who's worked in the industry for a long time and has seen the way quote trends the timing and the pace at which they've been pushed through the, the industry the past few years the reality is that there have not really been any new trends at all and yet we have successfully been tricking consumers into thinking there are and that they still need new stuff i mean think when was the last time you saw something really new and exciting out there like it just like normcore right. was maybe the last groundbreaking yeah. thing i've seen style wise 
there's a lot of core breakoffs now. There's like cottage core. And I just discovered a thing called trauma core. I was like, wow. Wow. Oh, yeah. Was, oh. I was reading about that the other day. It's so weird because I'm like a Pinterest nerd, too, because I just yeah. like, you know, I'm just constantly looking for like weird imagery and stuff. I was on a Zoom call, not a call, but like a Zoom happy hour the other night. And somehow it came up about cottage core. And I was like, oh, OK, you know, probably like a, a sister of prairie core or whatever. So I got into that whole rabbit hole and then found trauma core, which is basically just like comfort stuff, I think. Like sweatpants? Like, things centered around crying oh, and like teddy wow. bears stuff. I don't know. It was very weird. <laughs> I mean, I've been living that cottage core life my whole life. Like I, when I was a small child, I had cancer and my grandma would get me these outfits made that were like prairie dresses with matching bonnets to obscure my baldness. Oh yeah. I've seen some of those yeah, pictures yeah. So, you of know, you. <laughs> you know, and I have never fully left that style behind. <laughs> Well, it looks great on you. It's sort of like part of your identity, I feel like. (laughs) I do. I I think a lot about cottagecore, though, because, you know, when I was young, very young, it was the era of Little House on the Prairie being on television and Laura Ashley, right, and Gunny Sacks and all this return to this idea of, like, the American prairie to these, like, simpler times. Well, that was also the 70s and early 80s when, like, shit was dark like you have to remember there was watergate there was a fuel crisis there was incredible inflation and unemployment and sexism racism all the things that we're coping with right now it's like all back again but also with like horrible illness on top of it and it makes sense to me that cottagecore is trending right now looking back to the 70s and how we all wanted to be laura ingalls totally and then yeah like her and her sister was was laura and Oh, oh it was, yeah. Who was her sister? Her Mary. Sister? Mary. Mary. And then, of course, I was sort of like, I mean, low key obsessed with Nellie, too. Me, she too. She was like, such a psycho. But her, like, <laughs> she was basically the original gothic Lolita. Like, her yeah, style. I mean, and with those curls <laughs> yeah, and everything. She was yeah. just like so intense and like mean. And I grew up with like, you know, a very, we'll say, we'll, we'll just keep it neutral and say a complicated home life. And I just was sort of like weirdly obsessed with the mean girl a little bit because I was like so fascinated with her and kind of scared of her at the same time, you know? Yeah. Yeah. She, you know, did you read the books too when you were a kid? Um, I had some, I might, yeah, a little bit, but I wasn't like hardcore into them. She was so much meaner on the show than she was in the book. And mm-hmm. I want to say that like the casting was so on point. I have no idea who that actress was and if she ever did anything else, but she had a mean look. Like she yeah. was perfect. <laughs> well, I loved it too. It was like this juxtaposition too of, um, I think her parent, I remember her parents had the woman was like a dark hair bun pulled back and the father had like a mustache and they were kind of, they were like the candy store owners, right? right? Yeah. Like, like the, the general, general store. store. Yeah. 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 But, and maybe she was adopted, I think, or something. I don't remember. Well, but she didn't um, look like them. That's a yeah, good point. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. I want to yeah. know the DNA there. We'll have to go. We're going to go back yeah. and do a, a little search. <laughs> um, but I also was sort of like, just like as a style, like vibe of her, just like she was such a pretty pony. You know, she had like mm-hmm. that hair curled and those big bows. And it was very different than the like, kind of like low key prairie vibe of Laura and her sister. So that's what kind of like heightened her whole vibe of being like mean girl. Cause she was like this pretty pony, but she was like really nasty. Mm-hmm. I kind of loved that juxtaposition. I still sort of <laughs> love that as like a style. <laughs> I mean, not mean people don't get me wrong, but just sort of like in theory. No, mean people are terrible. Yeah. The style was really strong of that show. And now I'm like, do I want to watch yeah. some episodes this weekend? I mean, I don't know if it holds up. 
I'd be very curious. You should, and we should talk about it. I yeah. Not to get too far off. I won't go too far into this rabbit hole, but just a quick dip. I've been watching, because I sew a lot, as you know, you may imagine. Um, so I listen to a lot of podcasts, and uh, I'm always looking for, like, sometimes I just need, like, background noise to sort of, like, just to kind of, I don't know, zone out. So a lot of times I'll do like a deep dive of like an old television show that like, you know, is not something you're going to sit down and actually watch. For me, I'm just such a cultural dork that I like to like see all the weird stuff and see what was happening at the time again. So I put on Designing Women. <clears throat> I was like, oh, <laughs> oh my let God. me get into the like late night, like late 80s. Like what's happening with the ladies? And I, as a kid, I didn't really watch it. I think my mom might have a little bit. I just have memories of it being like a like lady empowerment show, like kind of like feminist, right? <laughs> and so I was like, okay, let me just see. And like the fashion was like, a, you know, very like iconic of that time and blah, blah, blah. So I've been rewatching it and oh man, it doesn't not really hold up delta burke is a raging racist like raging Ah. racist her whole vibe is she's like she's kind of like a southern belle debutante who had all these rich husbands and got divorced and now she's got a lot of money and she doesn't have to do anything and she owns a gun she's very pro-gun whoa she she shot someone on the show by accident this was not what i was expecting i was like oh my god designing women's like hardcore so it i mean the only thing feminist about it i think is well, there's two things. One is that the women like all support each other, right? They're all good friends. They all support each other. I mean, they like bicker and stuff and silly, but it, I was like, okay, that's feminist, like women supporting women. And then they talk about like the hot topics of the day, like domestic violence and stuff. It's all very like, you know, cheesy and like not really doesn't go that deep, but like it's dated and it's got these very traditional like gender stereotypes. And, you know, when they talk about like men and women and I mean, it's not a progressive show, but it, in my head, I was thinking it was gonna be like at the time I, I felt like it was supposed to be right it's like yeah no it definitely like, was it definitely was supposed right? to be so forward and anthony bouvier who's like their assistant so they have like an interior design firm in the south right he yeah. i thought he was gay in my memory wait he's not he's not gay he's straight he's a hetero guy well he's i mean mannequin which is like one of my favorite movies he plays hollywood mm-hmm. in that who was like a fl- like super flamboyant window dresser and and he was obviously gay in that so i just like in my head thought he was gay like the gay interior design assistant he's not gay and you know i'm just kind of eye rolling all this stuff this plot line it's like he's a black man who is an ex-con i'm like oh really guys and they keep talking about it he's you know so the only people of color on the show is anthony bouvier who's an ex-con who the ladies you know are so noble because they give him a shot you know after being like in prison and they talk about it constantly like oh his unfortunate incarceration you know i'm like oh and then the only other person of color which you never see is delta burke's maid called consuela i was like oh and she's into voodoo and puts hexes on people and stuff. I was like, dude, this is like so insane. Yeah. Like I just was like, wow. This is so like, anyway. Yeah, this is like white people <laughs> trying to figure out what non-white people are into and just dumping it all in one bucket together and being <laughs> yeah, like, here you go. Totally. And he also like just endures all their shit and like in their racism. And he's kind of like, you guys, you know, and I'm just like, oh my God, this is, it's deep i mean especially now with everything like you know that i've been thinking about with like representation more and all these things and i was just like wow designing women was not what i was i was expecting at all <laughs> wow well, good to know so i will skip that one because we joke about re-watching it all the time i'm still re-watching it because again i need like hours of just you know something on in the background <laughs> while i'm sewing and things um doing like handwork. 
so I'm rewatching it because now I'm just fascinated. I was like, where is this going to go? Are they going to get better at this? Or, you know, I'm just sort of like watching it for the specimen of like weird cultural moment, <laughs> you know, where I'm like, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I was just, blo- I really was blown away by the cr- insane racism that Delta Burke has and, and how everyone thinks it's like kind of like cheeky and like silly and they like laugh at it. And the fact that she was super into guns, those were, I was like a real like, Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean that, that character exists today. I know. I mean, that, I guess I'm such a like, I'm in such a like New York liberal bubble. I'm like, what? <laughs> These people exist? <laughs> no. I mean, obviously, yeah, they do. In today's world, Delta Burke's character would be speaking at the Republican National Convention this year. Oh, yeah. 100%. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah, the sugar bakers. Yeah, the sugar bakers would be there. Not Delta Burke <laughs> per se, just the sugar bakers. Right, just the sugar bakers. We'll <laughs> clarify that. Sorry, Delta Burke. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't want. I I've heard she's a lovely person. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> anyway, I did a ton of research into fabric recycling and like because I was like, yeah, what what's the deal with that? Like, how did how does it even work? I really had no idea. Like, I have a vague concept, and I mean super vague of how you know bottles and cardboard and whatnot are recycled. I actually know a strange amount about cardboard recycling because I had to go into it for a client. But I was like, how do clothes get recycled? You know, like I was imagining them all like getting dumped in a bunch of water and like mashed up by a machine, and then somehow like something pressed out something that was like clothes again. But that's definitely not how it works. And (laughs) so I'm going to tell you a lot of facts about recycling right now. Jenny, jump in if you have questions or something to say. It's pretty dry. Okay. The EPA estimates that the textile recycling industry recycles approximately 3.8 billion pounds of post-consumer textile waste. So that's stuff we bought and we don't want anymore. And this accounts for about 15% of all the post-consumer textile waste, which the EPA calls PCTW, in case you wanted to use an abbreviation and sound like you're really in the scene. So that leaves 85% of the textiles that we throw out in the landfills. And once again, that's not just our clothes, although that's a big chunk of it. It's also like our towels and our sheets and pet beds. And I mean, think of all the fabric that comes in and out of our life. It's kind of crazy, you know? So the U- yeah. the United States textile recycling industry removes approximately 2.5 billion pounds of post-consumer textiles each year from the waste stream. And that industry creates more than 17,000 jobs, which is not a ton because it's still such a small part of what's going on. And 10,000 people that do this job are, are what are called semi-skilled workers. I really... I really hate when we talk about people being unskilled or skilled. I think all of these are skills. Like I can't go in and just start recycling clothes right now. I have to be trained. That's a skill. And so those 10,000 people, they do the primary processing, which we'll get into later. And then the remaining 7,000 employees are in the final processing. So the more like technical aspect of it, there are more than 500 garment recycling companies in the United States. And a majority of them are small family businesses that employ like 35 to 50 workers. Interesting. I know. I thought that was pretty cool. I wouldn't have thought that. Me neither. And imagine like, so we're only recycling 15% of the stuff that goes to landfills. Imagine how many jobs and like how that could change our economy if we recycled the remaining 85%. Especially knowing that somehow this isn't like a big evil corporate overlord industry. 
Totally. Yeah. I mean, that could be a whole other industry that you could create in the U.S. talking about job bringing jobs and everything. Yeah. Like when we talk about like the Green New Deal and that idea of like creating jobs out of sustainable practices and, you know, climate change and whatnot, like this is a huge opportunity, which is not to say that we should continue buying tons of clothes and this idea that there'll be jobs down the line for people to recycle them. That's very bad thinking. So. I, once again, I was like, how does fabric recycling work? Like, I literally have no idea. So first, the fabrics are sorted by material type. And this makes sense because natural fabrics are recycled in a totally different way than synthetic. And the good news is that synthetic fabrics can be recycled. So that's awesome because we know they don't break down in the landfill. So the natural fabrics like cotton, linen, and wool are sorted by color and fabric type. Obviously, you want to recycle all the same types of fabrics together. That makes sense. But the color was really interesting to me. But the idea is that it saves on dye use in the future. So all the red garments are recycled together and all the blue and all the green because they're already the color that might be wanted for the end result. And that's great news because dyes are super toxic and they use so much water. So next... They get a bundle of, like, say, all the red cotton clothing. They pull it all apart and shred it, and they turn it into yarn. And depending on the type of end use, like maybe this is going to go into some T-shirts or something, additional fibers may be added to the mix to make it stronger or longer lasting or whatever the end use is, once again. Then the yarn is cleaned and carded. It's respun, and it's ready for weaving or knitting. And Some of these fibers are not even spun into yarn. They're just compressed for things like filling mattresses, which is pretty cool. seems like – I mean, I don't buy mattresses very often, but it seems like there are a lot of places selling them. (laughs) Right. Like I'm always confused by the mattress industry. (laughs) Like how are there so many places that sell mattresses? But anyway, hopefully they're using some of these recycled clothes, so that's great. So polyester fabrics have a different process, and – The way I visualized it when I was reading this, it made me think of like when you want to melt chocolate chips in the microwave and you put them in a bowl and you put them in there. That makes sense. So yeah, so they like shred them up and they granulate them into like chips of fabric and then they're melted and they're spun into new polyester fibers. But that's like the easy version of it. There's tons of chemical and heat processes along the way because this is plastic. You can't, I mean, I guess you can kind of melt plastic in the microwave, but you know uses a lot of yeah. electricity. So there's an awful lot of energy involved and it's really expensive. And in fact, textile recycling isn't more widespread because overall it's really expensive. It's so complicated and time consuming. It, as we talk about all the time, whenever people have to do things, it's infinitely more expensive. So most garments are made of many different fibers and components and like even the thread used to sew a 100% cotton t-shirt might be polyester and that needs to be pulled out. You need to pull off the labels, uh, buttons, zippers, all that stuff has to be disassembled before recycling. And then right now there are so many rando blends of fibers out there that are being used by the industry. Like some things might be 1% polyester, some things might be 10% and then there are all kinds of polyesters and acrylics and whatnot. So it's really hard to automate the process. You can't you can't have like a machine say, that's synthetic, that's natural, that's synthetic, that's natural. So an actual person has to look at every single garment and make a determination. It's highly skilled. You have to be an expert in fabrics. Yeah, and that's just also very time consuming. I mean, 
It is. It is. I mean, even as a consumer, I get confused when I'm shopping sometimes. I'm like, what is this? I can't imagine yeah. having to even with only the garment in my hand and maybe looking at the care label to figure out what to do with something because yeah. those labels are not very transparent in terms of what's really in there. It's like a vague promise of what's in it. Right. So France is leading the way by limiting the variety of blends and fibers brands can use, sort of saying like you have this many options, that's it. And the idea mm. that they can simplify the process of sorting, which will save tons of money. Money is what makes things happen or not happen, as we all know. And so that can make the process more automated and cheaper and then therefore more prevalent. Currently, you know, you, you'll see brands that are selling like recycled leggings, like recycled poly products. Right. All of that is actually coming from plastic bottles. It's not coming from recycled fabric because our fabric recycling technology isn't that great. It produces shorter fibers and shorter fibers break more easily. It's lower quality. So it's not ideal for clothing. It would be really short-lived clothing. So these fabrics tend to be downcycled, which is such a depressing word, into carpets, insulation, and industrial uses. And this technology is, is – there's hope there and someone's always working on it. There's a group of researchers at the City University of Hong Kong that have developed a technique for recycling fabrics made of both cotton and polyester blends by feeding them to fungi. It's a type of fungi that normally forms a black mold on grapes, produces an enzyme that can break down the cotton into glucose that can be turned into syrup. That can be drained off and it leaves pure polyester fibers that can be used to make clothing. But, you know, then you've got to get all this fungi and it takes time. So they've been working on duplicating this process with more commercially available enzymes and they're in conversations with H&M to use this on a wider scale. So that's pretty cool. There's also yeah. this other train of thought that's like, what if we rethought what we think of as fabric or a material that can be made into fabric? So there are all kinds of fabrics being made of things like algae and whey, ways like what's left when you like make cottage cheese sort of. Mm -hmm. And these things would at least be biodegradable. But once again, it's a long way to go to get yeah. milk to turn into clothes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I've often made, I've made ricotta fresh like at home and I'm always like, I should do something with this way. Maybe I'll just make sweaters. Yeah. Now. Just like sit it out for a while. I thought that was so crazy. Like the algae, I was like, yeah, okay, I could get there. I know algae is like more sure. mysterious, but the, the way really blew my mind. And I was like, what would those clothes smell like? And if they got hot, yeah, what would happen? Like if you were sweating in one, would you start to smell right. like cheese? I don't I have a lot of questions there. Uh, yeah. There's a lot of, a lot of unanswered things there. Yeah. Yeah. And so, <laughs> While there's hope down the line, I think that we cannot wait around for science to solve our problems. Like we need to change our behaviors now. We're a long way off from being able to just like recycle all our fabrics and then suddenly we're not wearing fabric, we're wearing milk. Like that's great, but <laughs> that's really far away. The future so, looks bright. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You thought, I mean, I'm sure you thought the same thing that in the future we'd all be wearing these androgynous unitards everywhere. You know, right. like that's what all the Star Trek programming taught me. Uh, but it turned out, no, we're just wearing milk. Yeah. <laughs> it's a totally different future than I expected. So we really have to be resourceful in different ways of like finding second life for all that excess industrial fabric waste and our old clothing. So you called out a really awesome thing 
Jenny, which was this place called Fab Scrap. You want to yep. tell us a little bit about that? Because it's pretty cool. So it's a it's a nonprofit company that's based in uh, New York and in Brooklyn. And I believe the woman who started it worked for the Department of Sanitation here in New York. And so she started this company basically to help with this issue, with this like surplus of fabric, like we were talking about earlier, that just, you know, gets thrown in landfills, gets burned, get, you know, just sits around. So basically she works with a lot of the fashion industry where they donate those materials to her and to the company. So basically they have a couple different ways they work. They have um, sort of like a retail setup. Um, there's two different locations. There's one in Manhattan that's more like very retail vibe. And then there's more of a warehouse, which I've gone to in Brooklyn and Sunset Park. And so basically, mm-hmm. that's just literally getting fabrics that people don't want that are clean and, you know, basically unused and then reselling them to people who can use them. And I think they do a actual recycling from scraps, which I don't know as much about, like, which you talked about some of that process. But I know there is a, a segment of the business that's taking like actual unusable scraps and recycling those materials into new materials. But it's a great way for me too, as you know, someone who really wants to keep a lot of the materials that I use, uh, you know, salvaged, vintage, and sometimes you just need like solid colors and things like that. So it's been great for me in that sense. I've gone down and found some, you know, just some cottons or things like that to like add in my patchworks and stuff. So yeah, that's a very cool company. I know they do a lot of, um, they're like very volunteer based and they'll do some Mm -hmm. like events where people can come and sort and things like that, which is kind of fun. I'm sure there's a couple more people doing that, but that that's the one in, in New York that I've I've learned about and, and, and actually used. And the good news is you can buy fabric from them online now too. I don't know if that's yes. like new to COVID, but so you don't have to be in New York to take this opportunity. It's really cool. Yeah. Especially if you're somebody like myself, who's into like patchworking and things, they have like kind of scrap bags, which is fun too, where it's like a mystery bag of a ton of scraps of like blues or reds. And I think they just sort them by colors and they're, you know, fairly cheap. It's great to like add to like a, if you're doing patchwork or things like that. In Portland, we had a place called Scrap. It still exists. And it was not just fabrics. It was basically craft and art supplies as well. Seriously, one of my favorite places in the world. I've spent so many good times at Scrap yeah. finding the coolest, coolest shit. Yeah, like fabric, yarn, random notions, uh, letra set, glues, cool old art books, old maps, you name it. People mm. will just donate things that they think maybe someone will want to use. Yeah. And they also do a lot of community outreach to show people how to utilize these materials and stuff. I love that. And I feel like that's such an early aughts idea, but I, I hope that it's continuing across the country. I think it's really coming back now. I mean, or there's like a wave again of, of trying to use what's out there. There's such an like excess of just crap. I mean, you know, just like stuff in the world. And I think I have been seeing a lot more designers and people like, you know, making clothing, making things kind of trying to reach out to some of that, which I think is great. I think so too. And I think, you know, I love like a challenging creative project where I have to be really resourceful about what I get. And yeah. I'm always happier with how that turns out. I get really depressed when I go to like Joanne or Michael's because I see yeah. so much waste going on there. Like the whole, oh, the scrapbooking section alone will just like. Well, yeah. And I actually, it's funny because I was talking to a friend of mine with, with her daughter and I'm going to be like doing some stuff with her and it's like I also feel the same way when I go to like a Joann's or whatever which is is fine for its purpose and then you need glue or mm-hmm. you need whatever you need but like the whole part of like something like scrapbooking or you know doing these creative projects is is because you want to be creative so when you have like a kit 
or something, it doesn't feel as much fun to me versus like, hey, I found some fabric and I found this. Let's like make collages out of fabric of kids or, you know, something like that versus going yeah. and getting like a collage kit. I mean, what's the fun in that? And I understand some, you know, some parents and some people are not like super creative and they're like, I need help with that, which is fine. I'm not trying to like, you know, shame them or anything, mm-hmm. but I just find right, it more right. fun to sort of like make it up, you know, and like see what you have. Like I have all these spools of, for my thread when I sew and I just been saving them in a bag. So when I, you know, watch my friend's kid, I can be like, okay, we can make like spool people, you know, or something. Yeah, no, that's a great idea. Or make like Christmas ornaments or Yeah, you know, it's more fun. Or, yeah. when it's like a, ch- a challenge when you're like, okay, I have these spools of thread. What can we make with them? You know, and like that kind of exploration creatively, I think is a lot more fun than buying a kit and making bracelets or something, you know? Yeah, like I have at all of these stores many times seen these kits that are popsicle sticks <laughs> and like make right. things out of popsicle sticks it's essentially a box of popsicle sticks and i'm like no no that's not how it works it's not a kit for <laughs> popsicle sticks like come on guys <laughs> right and i also even with like my love of the 70s i've collected a lot of 70s craft books and uh there's actually a series called i think it's called the family workshop i don't know if you've ever heard of it Ah, <gasps> uh, yeah i have some of them <laughs> You do. Yeah. So I, you know, I've, uh, over the years I've collected like, you know, just one or two here or there. And it's basically like, it's like an encyclopedia of like how to do a variety of like home improvements, crafts, like also like making candles, making leather belts, you know, all sorts of stuff. And I actually stumbled upon a full set one time and I was (gasps) like, oh God, fine. So it's like, I feel like I'm taking these orphans in when I'm like, I have to take this full set of the family workshop encyclopedias now. <laughs> so um, I have the full set and it's really fun to look through and just like find all sorts of weird stuff to do. Do you remember, this is only related to finding whole sets of books. Uh, yes. Do you remember the Time Life series in the 80s called Mysteries of the Unknown? And it would be about like aliens and the Bermuda Triangle and ghosts and the pyramids. I don't remember that, but it's very on brand for me. I, would, I feel like I should. <laughs> I'll have to send you some information about it. So they were, I felt okay. like those commercials were on all the time when I was a kid, but maybe it's just that subject matter is really appealing to me. And I really wanted someone to buy me these books. Now, in retrospect, I can see why nobody bought me these books, but <laughs> I was always like, grandma, all I really want for my birthday and Christmas for the next five years is mysteries of the unknown. And she would sort of be like, no, you're, you're not getting those books. It's so, <laughs> like, we're not getting involved in that. Yeah. So we all have those things that like are in our minds. Like when we see them thrifting, we get, it's like, Oh my God, finally, I'm going to fulfill my dreams, my greatest desires. And a few years right. ago, this was like, I feel like I had just started dating Dustin we were thrifting outside LA and we were at a thrift store where I never even could find anything. And we found an entire set of these books, which we had to buy. So we have them. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Carting around more stuff. I mean, it's like, yeah. Yeah. So great. I have these like 30 year old books about aliens uh, the Bermuda Triangle, <laughs> UFOs. They're probably do they have good illustrations and they, stuff, or are they more just like straight copy? No, they're good. They are really Ooh, good. Okay. I should like share some of those photos on uh, social media because they're, yeah. they're strong. Everybody needs that right now. Yeah, because I was a big uh, fan of Unsolved Mysteries. <gasps> Me too. Um, that was like yeah, and which I've also watched every episode. I did a rewatch, which I have to say, I mean, if you're not into like 
spooky stuff, then you're not going to like it. And there is a lot of like murder and stuff. But the thing about that is I'm not somebody who listens to podcasts and horror and stuff because I want to hear all the gruesome details about some how someone was killed. I mean, that's not really why mm-hmm. I'm, in, I'm in it for the mystery. I mean, mm-hmm. the unsolved mystery part of it, you know, totally. And um, it really holds up as like a show. I mean, unlike designing women um, <laughs> that <laughs> I was like, cause I used to, Oh, I was obsessed with unsolved mysteries as a kid. Oh, and then I was too. like, oh, let me rewatch this. Right. And so I rewatched all of them. I think there's like, oh, this is embarrassing. I think there's like 12 seasons and I've literally watched all of them. I think you're right. I think you're right. Yeah. We have been working our way through them for the past couple of years. Sometimes I have to take a break because well, two reasons. One, it puts me in that spooky yeah. mode right away. Like music. I hear the music and I'm like, I'm scared. <laughs> I'm on the edge of my yeah. seat, right? It's even on the new, sh- you know, there's the new version. Oh, yeah, I Netflix. watched those too. It's good. Yeah, it's good. And they kept the music, which was really, really important. I have to, every time I watch an old episode of Unsolved Mysteries, I have to go on the internet and learn more about it. And I'll tell you, people on Reddit are still trying to solve those mysteries and they're old oh yeah i mean there's a podcast of guys who talk i mean they're talk about those i gotta listen to that i just love yeah i love mysteries me too yeah i mean that's why i love podcasts and stuff too it's just like but what happened though yeah but the thing i also loved speaking that's why i was talking about it when you were talking about those books is that they did i love the categories because there was you know the, the the basics like you know wanted and so it was like Lost Loves, which I have to say was my least favorite. I don't Me care. Too. I was like, also, great. All the orphan train <laughs> segments. Yeah, I'm just like, ugh. <laughs> <laughs> I don't care about you and your long lost sister. I'm such a, I'm such a jerk. I know, but I'm, I'm like, terrible. whatever. Yeah. The uh, unexplained. I've gone through now that I've watched them all, and there's some really good weird stuff because they have some stuff about like UFOs and like into that whole world for sure. There's two that are my absolute favorite. One is the it was two young kids who were caught up in a satanic cult in quotes, and the parents talk about like their satanic cult, which was probably total bullshit. Um, like there's probably an unfortunate accident that happened when like these kids were partying or something, you know, that one's amazing. And the other one that's like one of my faves is a woman. <laughs> so ridiculous. And it's like, they actually have actual video footage of this. It's a woman who says that she's like, m- like marked with like something special. Like she's like sort of like special or cursed or I don't even know. And she sweats gold leaf so there's an actual <laughs> doctor Stop. that she goes into and they're like we're gonna you know document this 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 phenomenon and so she sits in this small office and she's like i mean the guy must have been in on it because she's literally paste has gold leaf that you'd buy in like a craft store or whatever and she's like show, lifting up her shirt and she's showing gold leaf on her stomach and on her neck and stuff and i was like these guys are out of their goddamn minds that one's a really good one because it's just so unbelievable that like this this quacky yeah. doctor was like yeah let's just, let's do this you know like oh so crazy there's like no vetting clearly <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what I loved about that show. It was like, you know, not only was it just the basic, like somebody was killed or, you know, whatever, it was like spooky, weird stuff where I'm like, what is this lady's deal? You know, that's the stuff I was always like. Yeah. Ooh. I mean, I want to know more about her. Yeah, absolutely. We should do a deep dive. Yeah. I, we need to, we need to figure out <laughs> what's she doing now? How's her condition? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> early unsolved mysteries the fashion is like off the chain it's so good it's just like 
just that early mm-hmm. 80s like weird shit and then as you get older i mean not older as you get further in the series it gets into the 90s and stuff and although mcconaughey was in a reenactment what i gotta find yeah, that one it's a good one it, it was actually a really scary one it was like this really fucked up guy i think in texas that was just like getting out of his truck and like killing people like with a shotgun it was like really intense but they did a reenactment and mcconaughey it's so good i've totally like screenshotted it and put it on social media because it's like mcconaughey has like a death scene <laughs> and i'm not trying to, i mean it's not funny obviously but it's like sort of funny just because mm-hmm. his whole acting you know it's before he made it so it's like mm-hmm. pre pre dazing infused i guess yeah oh god i'm gonna i'm gonna look for that today yeah uh so anyway <laughs> <laughs> now i'm like we doing... should do a whole separate podcast on like weird show deep dives i know like i know i mean i would listen to that <laughs> also mm-hmm. i would enjoy talking about weird show deep dives that's like all we do in our house yeah hey it's me again The second half of my conversation with Jenny will be available on Sunday. We'll be talking about how she uses salvage fabric in her own line, and I'll be explaining just how thrift stores sort through all their stuff. You don't want to miss it. (laughs) Guys, guess what? It's time for the long-awaited debut of the Ask Amanda segment. I know you've been on the edge of your seat just waiting for this. I chose this letter because it related to something Janelle and I discussed in our last episode. Are you ready? Dear Amanda, many years ago when I was working in alternative schools, my eyes were open to the glories of investing in natural fabrics, in particular wool and silken base layers that wear like iron while keeping my tits and bits enveloped in a reassuring warmth. However, the fly in the ointment has always been the hidden cost of maintenance. As a thrifty, unemployed wastrel, I can justify the cost of purchasing these types of garments because I know I will get a ton of use out of them. But I balk at the cleaning instructions which specify dry clean only. More often than I care to admit, I've let the laundry end of the equation slip and cut corners to the tune of airing it out or It's been a while since I last wore this. That's the same as a wash, right? Is there such thing as a cost-conscious at-home life hack that achieves the effect of dry cleaning at a fraction of the cost? I'm spooked by the prospect of inadvertently shrinking the cornerstones of my wardrobe. Hanging on your words, pressed in Pasadena. Hi, pressed. I have to start by saying that I've had a very contentious relationship with dry cleaning for most of my life. I bought a prom dress from the Salvation Army. It was an amazing 70s, like mega polyester maxi dress with a sheer mesh overlay. And it was like watercolor floral. It was so beautiful. I dyed a pair of elbow length gloves to match, naturally. And I had some ballet style slip-ons dyed to match at Payless. Do you remember you could do that? I feel like there were always ads for that in like YM and Teen Magazine. Who needs a pair of shoes that are dyed to match exactly your clothes? It's really silly. So I'm glad it's gone. Well, my mom thought it was crazy that I was wearing a $3 dress to prom, which is kind of hilarious when you think that my shoes from Payless probably cost 20 bucks. So she offered to have it dry clean to like kind of class it up a bit. And I looked amazing. I mean, I wish I had photos. This was a great outfit. But unfortunately, the night was kind of soured. And not just because prom is kind of lame and boring and always disappointing, right? I mean, I'm sure it it is for anyone who hasn't, I don't know, lost their virginity to Dylan McKay, right? (laughs) 
But the real reason prom totally sucked is I had an allergic reaction to the dry cleaning chemicals. I developed a burning, I mean, just like excruciating rash all over from my shoulders to my ankles. I mean, because after all, it was a maxi dress. After that, I thought, Something is weird and definitely not good about dry cleaning. So I started reading about it. And, you know, it was hard to find information in the 90s about dry cleaning. It was sort of like a top secret industry. I had to dig through a ton of microfiche in the school library to really learn anything. And basically, I have dry cleaned almost nothing since then. One time a suede jacket. That's it. So here's the deal with dry cleaning. Dry cleaning relies on a chemical called perchloroethylene. Fortunately, it's also called perk, which is what we'll be using from now on. <laughs> Basically, garments are washed in sort of like a front loader type washing machine that uses perk in place of water. And scientists have known for decades that perk is carcinogenic. In the 1970s, studies suggested that perk was a carcinogen. Mice that ate it or inhaled its vapors were more likely to develop liver tumors. The American Cancer Society has pointed to studies in humans that show workers regularly exposed to perks, so dry cleaning employees, have increased rates of lymphomas and cancers of the esophagus, kidney, cervix, and bladder. All very bad news. Today, it's considered a neurotoxin. Exposure can cause dizziness, blurred vision, and loss of coordination. That's pretty scary, right? And simply picking up a perk-cleaned garment that wasn't properly dried, which can happen, can temporarily trigger these symptoms. Longer exposure can lead to memory loss. Are you freaked out yet? Because I am. Well, how about this? A single spilled drop of perk can push through the concrete foundation of a dry cleaning facility, past layers of rock and soil, all the way down to groundwater reservoirs. It's very scary. So by now, everyone knows that perk is bad news, but it's still used in 70% of dry cleaning businesses. And that's partially because dry cleaning has always been a really risky and dangerous business. I bet you didn't expect me to say that. In the early days of dry cleaning, the cleaning agents were all petroleum-based. They contained kerosene, gasoline, benzene. Dry cleaning facilities had to be placed outside towns and cities because they tended to catch on fire or even explode. So in the 1930s, when Perk was introduced, it seemed like a much better option. Like it was a real marvel of modern science and dry cleaners were able to move back into the city, into the ground floor of apartment buildings, into strip malls. You know, they were much more conveniently located. So this industry was allowed to flourish. The other reason that a lot of dry cleaners aren't swapping out of these Perk machines is because it's expensive to replace the machines. We're looking at sixty dollars to $70,000. And most of these dry cleaners have a very low profit margin. Like they're not rolling a ton of money into savings to buy new machines. When you take your clothes to the dry cleaner, they will first determine whether it's washable or not. So often, believe it or not, it will actually be wet washed like at home, but perhaps more carefully, and certainly it will be steamed and pressed. Like most likely it's going to look really good and be really clean, right? And this happens a lot, like a lot. Not as much stuff is being dry cleaned as you think. I mean, if it can't be washed, it'll head into the dry cleaning machine, but that's sort of like the last resort. Now, if it has a stain like blood, chocolate, coffee, rust, I'm sure there are tons of other stains that might be too gross or embarrassing to mention here. The dry cleaning staff will first specially treat the stain before they wet wash it or send it into the dry cleaning machine. 
If the garment is dry cleaned, it will be cleaned, pressed, hung, and placed in a plastic bag. So the plastic bags, here's the thing about them. They're super stupid from an environmental perspective, right? Because what are you going to do with this bag? And it's wasteful, right? But it's actually really important because wool, cotton, and polyester tend to hold on to the perk. In fact, even in a week, a wool garment only loses about half of the perk on it. So if you keep it in the bag for a few weeks or until you're ready to wear it, more of the perk will evaporate into the bag rather than the air. And that's a good thing. Otherwise, it's just evaporating into your home, your lungs, your cat's lungs. Silk is the only fabric that does not seem to hold on to perk at all. Everything else does. So you're probably asking, Amanda, what about green dry cleaning? I mean, I've seen signs all over the place for this. Well, you're probably not surprised to hear that most of these so-called eco-friendly options aren't much better. One dry cleaning solvent that's used in these so-called green dry cleaning methods is called siloxane D5, and it's probably carcinogenic based on studies. It accumulates in the bodies of both humans and animals, and it kind of hangs out in the environment, so it's pretty risky. Hydrocarbon solvent is another option, and studies have shown that this causes cancer in rats, so probably not a good choice either. Liquid carbon dioxide is the safest option because it uses a naturally occurring gas and also recyclable cleaning agents. So basically, you have to ask your dry cleaner about the chemicals they're using. It's going to feel awkward, but it's the only way you're going to be able to make a good decision. But that brings us back to the main question here. Can I just wash my clothes myself? Because dry cleaning is so expensive, and I'm here to tell you, yes, you can. First... Cottons, linens, and sturdy polyesters. And when I say sturdy polyesters, you're going to be able to make this judgment call on your own. Like, does it feel snaggy? Is it super sheer? Is it like chiffon adjacent? Those you don't want to wash yourself. But if it's a pretty sturdy polyester, you're good to go. You can wash these in the washing machine, but there's some rules. You want to use one of those mesh laundry bags, which are like the best $5 you'll ever spend. I use them all the time. Use cold water, cold water, non-negotiable. You want to use the gentle, delicate cycle, whatever your washing machine calls it. And you want to use a mild detergent. So nothing with like bleach additives or whitening power. You want to hang these clothes to dry immediately after they're done washing. And don't use the dryer. No matter how tempting it is, don't use the dryer. You know, one time I was buying a bra at Macy's. And the saleswoman, she was a little weird. She was like, I always say there's there's three words that start with D and they're all terrible. Death, dryers. I don't remember the other D. Maybe it was just two Ds. <laughs> anyway, death and dryers, guys. Okay, so wool, silk, and cottons can be hand-washed, like literally with your hands, using a delicate detergent like wool light, laundress, or there's another one called soak. Once again, cold water is your friend here. Take off any rings you're wearing so you don't snag your clothes with your jewelry. I've learned that one the hard way. And when you're done, you dry. This is the thing. You're not going to like wring it out or shake it out or anything like that. You're going to dry your garment by rolling it between two towels. So you're going to roll it up like a little Debbie Swiss roll until the excess water is removed. And your clothes will be the cream. The towels will be the cake, just in case you didn't get that metaphor. 
when you feel like it's pretty dry, like most of the excess water has been removed, then you're going to lay it flat to finish drying on a third towel. So yeah, you're going to be using some towels here. But once again, isn't this better than going to the dry cleaner? Also, you shouldn't need to wash your clothes every time you wear them. I tend to spot clean mine, like the number one culprit, smelly armpits. I usually just wash the armpits with some Dr. Bronner's and a washcloth and I hang it to dry or lay it flat depending on what it is. There are also these weird at-home dry cleaning kits that, to be honest, they just perfume your clothes. So I tend to avoid them. I think they're gross and they always seem to use a lot of plastic and they're just, we don't need those. We're better than that. Leather can be spot cleaned with a damp paper towel or a spray leather cleaner. Some people swear that you can soak it in a mixture of dish soap and water and then hang it to dry, but I'm pretty wary of this. I mean, I'm sure it works, but what if it doesn't, right? I would just say stay on top of the spot cleaning and maybe take it to the dry cleaner every few years if necessary. Like I said, the only thing I've dry cleaned in this century is a suede coat, which brings me to the next thing. There are some fabrics that you just have to dry clean, and that's just how it is. Fur, suede, taffeta, and velvet. If it's a nice velvet. If it's like a weird stretchy velvet, go for it. If it has like intricate or delicate beadwork or embroidery, I would say hand wash with caution, but maybe consider dry cleaning. It's kind of just like, how much do you trust yourself to be careful? If you have to dry clean, which, you know, it happens to all of us, look for someone who uses the carbon dioxide method. And if you can't find that, you have to go the old timey, terrible way, then let your clothes air out in the yard or on the porch for a day or two. Don't store them in your car. I feel like that sounds silly, but think about it. You've been in some cars where there's some dry cleaning hanging in the back for an awfully long time. Basically, if you leave it in your car, your car is slowly filling with perk and it's a really enclosed space where it's just sort of build up and you don't want to expose your brain or your lungs to that. Thanks for writing in Preston Pasadena, or maybe I can just call you Pip. <laughs> I'm here to give you advice in terms of shopping better, making your clothes last, or even just answering questions about the industry. If you have a burning question, you can either email it to clotheshorsepodcast at gmail.com or DM via Instagram where you'll find us at Close Horse Podcast. Thank you for listening to another episode of Close Horse. If you like what you're hearing, please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. I mean, let's bring more people into the club of not giving money to assholes, right? We need more. We need to build an army here, but like a nice, good army. And thank you to everyone who's been sharing our posts and sending kind messages on Instagram. I'm going to be honest, it's been a tough few days for me here, and your feedback keeps me going. I'm working on an upcoming series of episodes about retail workers, their struggles, and their fight for fair wages and better conditions. If you've worked retail, and I bet a lot of you have, <laughs> I would like to hear your stories. Basically, collecting your stories will help me frame out what I need to research and discuss. So we're talking things like wage disparity, uh, unpaid overtime, uh, strange favoritism, racism, sexism, harassment, just general abuse of employees. You know what I mean. Unfair scheduling. I could go on and on. There's always something bad going on, right? You can either send your stories via email to closehorsepodcast at gmail.com or via Instagram. 
If writing's not your thing, you can also send me a voice memo recorded on your phone or computer, and I will just drop that right into the episode. And as I've said before, this can be as confidential as you want it to be. We don't need to use your name. We don't need to use the name of where you worked, or we can. It's up to you. If you love listening to me talk, you should check out my other podcast, The Department, which I co-host with my friend Kim. You might remember her from our e-commerce episodes, which feel like they were 100 years ago. (laughs) We talk about trends of all sorts, from fashion to social to food to beverages and everything in between. This week's episode is about how the pandemic has created all of these outdoor trends. It's really fun and it gets pretty weird sometimes. I'll share a link in the show notes, but once again, it's called The Department. Thanks as always to my other half, Dustin Travis White, for our theme music and audio support. Bye.